You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. Welcome to the program. In another eventful week in Australia, we've seen news of a lockdown in Brisbane and the cancelling of Australia's biggest music festival. That's Blues Fest. But also making the news, journalism. Or one journalist in particular, Samantha Maiden. The Australian Financial Review wrote a rather strange piece that tried to sheet the problem in Canberra to noisy women journalists, and Maiden was its main target. Most people in the media saw it as a good old-fashioned hit job. We ask in this edition, what is going on in the Australian media? And is this Me Too moment in Canberra already turning into a culture war on gender lines? Joining us to talk about all of this, we're joined by Amy Ramikis, The Guardian Australia's political reporter, She's also a Queenslander and has previously worked for Fairfax and is a Young Walkley Award nominee. Amy, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hello, thanks for having me. And the wonderful Amber Schultz, who is Crikey's investigative journalist. She's also a Young Walkley's finalist and Jacoby Walkley scholar. Amber, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you both on. Now, since Brittany Higgins' allegation of rape in Parliament House came to light, Canberra and more broadly Australia have been in the grip of a a reflex moment of awareness of what women have actually been putting up with since day one. However, this moment of realisation from the PM and, and down really seems to already quite literally be going off the rails. Before we get to Samantha Maiden and... Uh, that wonderful piece in the AFR. I'd love to talk about your thoughts in general. And, and do, you, do both of you see this as a sea change moment in Australia? Amy, can you go first? Uh, I do I do think it is. Uh, uh, Australia sort of missed out, I suppose, on the Me Too moment when it was happening, uh, particularly in America and mm. the UK, mm. and definitely didn't happen in politics. So we are actually seeing everyone having the conversation that is well overdue. But I think it also should be mentioned that uh, the these women who have come forward, these brave women, aren't the only or the first to have done it. We have had several women come forward uh, previously who have tried to raise these issues that we're now talking about, uh, you know, across the spectrum. And so I do sometimes wonder why it is now, like what is it about this moment that has led us to have this conversation? And the only thing I can think of is that Parliament House is a representation of society, obviously, but the allegation of a rape inside Parliament House seems to have been so shocking that it's actually shifted a lot of people into having to think about these issues that they haven't wanted to think about previously. Amber, what's your assessment? I think it is really interesting that, you know, Brittany Higgins is really what kicked off a lot uh, of the protests of the rallies, you know, the March for Justice. It is something that's been brewing for a while, obviously. I think my concern my concern with the entire Me Too movement and the, and the fact that it's happening now is that it will be driven off course by a distraction or a tokenistic gesture. Um, I think it's a, bit, a conversation we've been having for a while and all that's happening is that we're getting angrier and our voices are getting louder that nothing really is changing. Everything that's being done to address it is quite paltry, it's quite small and, and it really does just serve as a distraction. Um, and I think Australia has the benefit in a way of being a little bit behind other movements to see what went wrong in the US and the UK. Whereas I think there, 
what kind of didn't happen was real change. You know, we've got awareness, we've got momentum, and we've got a lot of people being supported when they come and speak out. But in terms of policy, in terms of education, you know, nothing on the ground has really shifted. Well, speaking of tokenistic movements or uh, tokenistic Band-Aids. The Prime Minister announced a, a reshuffle on Monday and while Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds did retain their positions in the ministry, they were both demoted. More women are now being brought into the ministry and this was actually greeted by the by the Daily Telegraph as fair go for the fairer sex as PM shuffles deck. Um, as the fairer sex, uh, what do both of you think of the reshuffle and the telly's take? Amber? <laughs> I mean, it's just really interesting that, you know, we've got this assistant minister for women. So it it just, it shows the lack of female talent in the coalition government. You're referring to Amanda Stoker? I am referring to Amanda Stoker. The fact that when we're looking for an assistant minister for women, we have to find someone who's anti-abortionist, has said some horrible things about transgender people, um, you know, and and who says who has accused other women of coming forward with bullying claims of playing the gender card? I think number one, it just shows that we we really don't have the kind of representation we would want in our current government. Um, and I think number two, it's it's more of this distraction. You know, we've we've had an office for women and a minister for women for a while now. The problem is that they don't speak out and they don't have power, and the offices not listened to, spoken over and underfunded, rather than announcing a new assistant, we should be looking at the structures we already have and amplifying them. Amy, what's your assessment? Yeah, I mean, Amber did a great piece during the week on just, you know, how little has changed and how we are are getting quite a lot of tokenistic responses to this, uh, which I really think did nail just nail what's wrong with the response to this issue because, I mean, the cabinet reshuffle such as it was, it was only moving around existing chess pieces. So while the Prime Minister has said, look at all of these women in my cabinet, all but one was already there. He's just Mm. given them some extra titles and he's moved, you know, some women into some more higher profile um, portfolios, such as Karen Andrews, who has been moved into home affairs. She was previously industry, science and technology. So there's been a little bit more visibility, but in terms of swelling the ranks or actual change, we haven't seen that. And all all this, you know, the, the, you know, the Prime Minister for Women, you know, which is what uh, the Prime Minister referred to Maurice Payne as, because apparently it's now gender specific mm. that you can't be a male Prime Minister and also the Prime Minister for Women. Mm. Uh, all he's done is said, all of these women in my cabinet are now going to be part of this special cabinet task force where we're going to look at women's issues and we're going to look at women's economic security and women's safety and women's well-being. But as Amber has pointed out. All of these things already exist. We already have all of that. It's just he's brought them together under one umbrella. And I I saw a really interesting stat during the week uh, that Stream, which is one of the media companies that sort of collate uh, media announcements and media terms and things like that, they showed that uh, Payne's profile herself, like in terms of how many times uh, Maurice Maurice Payne, the Minister for Women, had been mentioned, was up 200%. And that, you would think, was a lot. 
but the role, like her actual title, Minister for Women, was up 7,800%. Maurice Payne has been fairly, like, invisible during all of this. She's the Minister for Foreign Affairs. We don't have a standalone Minister for Women. We don't have somebody who's, you know, taking charge of it and making it as visible as possible and being responsible for that. We've just had a lot of tokenistics oh, we're dealing with the issue, let's all move on, everyone gets a pat on the head, thanks very much. It's just asking women to shoulder extra tasks. This mm-hmm. isn't instead of their other role, this is on top of all of their other work. You know, it would be really nice to have a Minister for Women that didn't also shoulder another massive portfolio mm-hmm. who could actually focus on the issues. Hmm. And absolutely, and on, on that, I mean, when Scott Morrison last addressed the party room, he actually asked the women in his room who are, you know, only make up about 30% of the coalition uh, to step up and be the guiding lights. Well, Mm -hmm. I would argue that women across this entire like conversation have stepped up. Like where are the men? Why, Mm -hmm. Why cannot men lead like some sort of response to what has largely been spoken about as a men's issue. Women can raise the issues. Women can say this is happening. And so far we've had the Prime Minister say, oh, that's great. I was completely unaware of just how deep this issue went until a month ago. Can you talk to me a little bit more about it? No. How Mm. about we see some leadership from Mm. the men Mm. who actually control the the directions of policy and who control the direction that the government goes in this. This whole appointing women and this, pre, uh, you know, female prime minister for women, it's it's really just reinforcing the notion that Scott Morrison considers all of this to be women's issues. You know, it's something that affects women and therefore should be dealt with quietly and privately by women and that men don't really pay a role, which is insulting to both men and women. Um, and I think it's it's a huge concern. Well, on that, now that the PM has taken a sizable hit in the polls, Essentials numbers have actually showed the change in support. is actually It's strictly on gender lines, which I thought was really interesting. So the figures show that men as a group remain fairly unchanged by the recent events. So I'm guessing the two of you aren't really shocked or disappointed. Or I mean, is it totally predictable that these events are yet to make their mark or any mark for that matter with men? Uh, I think um, I think it is probably totally predictable, and I preface that with the like you know, the not all men tag because yes. that comes at me every single time that I speak about men in general. If it doesn't apply to you, just let it fly. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about you, obviously, but I do think that the prime minister's response has been very calculated because he knows exactly who he's talking to, and it's not you or I or Amber or probably anyone listening to this podcast. It's a group of people who control what he likes to call quiet Australia and they can control where that one or two percent of the vote goes because we need to remember that the coalition didn't absolutely romp it in. It was pretty much just 51-49 at the last election. The coalition only won government by three seats. They need to win absolutely every single seat to retain government. So when Scott Morrison talks about these things, he's not talking to people who he thinks have already made up their mind about the government. He's talking predominantly to the men who have not. And his his uh, rhetoric on this has been very targeted to those people. Blokes don't always get it right, but we're trying. We don't want 
to turn this into a men versus women's issue. You know, like this is something serious. We need to protect women. We need to respect women. And we're going to listen to the women as we work our way through this. And all of it is designed to make it seem like, as Amber has said, this is a woman's issue. You don't need to worry your pretty little male heads about it. (laughs) It it also shocked me, you know, Labor and the Greens have fairly good female representation or the Greens have majority female representation. And all I could think was if they had put a female leader forth, you know, a couple of years ago, imagine how well-placed they would be now. Imagine how popular they would be now to be able to have a female leader stand up and call out Scott Morrison's failings rather than having another man addressing because, of course, allegations of harassment and bullying are across all party lines. But just imagine how well-placed they'd be for a woman to come out and say this and, and what that would do for their popularity to the fact that people could actually see a difference and, and see a change across party lines. Yeah, that's true. So that, that, there'd be like a visceral sort of difference if you had, you know, Sarah Hanson-Young, leader of the Greens, or a Tanya Plibersek or Penny Wong, leader of the Labor Party, exactly. so to speak. Yeah. If you're a woman in politics, after seeing what Julia Gillard mm, went through, would mm. you want to take on that mantle? Because Very true. Yeah. Like Julia Gillard was not that long ago. And I know that looking back on her treatment seems like it was a million years ago, but it wasn't. It was mm. like less than a decade ago. And those scars still run deep. And they, like my mother, for instance, has always said she just doesn't, She when Julia Gillard was prime minister, she just didn't feel comfortable having a woman in charge. And that view has been reinforced by politics since then. And I think that that is another thing that certain elements of politics likes to exploit because then it keeps the power structures exactly where they are. Well, we look at um, in the United States, uh, Hillary Clinton, for instance, when she was Secretary of State, was actually quite a popular person in government. And at one point, I think, overtook Obama uh, when it came to a popularity in the polls of, of, of those serving in government. But she was in a, a more subservient position uh, at the end of the day to a man. She worked for a man. She didn't have the top job. She worked for President Obama. But as soon as she put herself in the running for the top job, uh, you know, that really cha- the, the, the tide really changed. And we can see that in a lot of, I mean, there's so many different examples of that mm-hmm. over time that we could point to. So it's clear many men are yet to understand what's happening in the nation and in the general debate. What can we do to bring them along with us? We know a large chunk of Australian men are on board, but maybe not, I wouldn't say a majority. Is there a message we need to communicate or is this just only going to work on those with daughters or, you know, someone who's got a Jenny at home to to talk about these issues with? I I definitely think it's one to do with community. It's this idea that, you know, this isn't just about women or for women. You know, even if you trace it back to this idea of, you know, women's issues, um, you know, childcare, the gender pay gap, superannuation, this shouldn't be considered as a women's issue. This should be considered as we as a society have inequality and we need to address this. And by addressing inequality, we actually do benefit everyone. So childcare shouldn't be a, oh, this will increase, you know, female participation in the workplace or this will increase GDP. It is, this is a responsibility for parents and, and for families, you know. I think that's that's really important to address that it's it's for the benefit of society as a whole, rather than just for women to not have to walk through the streets scared. Amy? Mm, yeah, no, I um, I think that's a really good point. And I also think that it just, it needs to be 
just recognized it's not not as a woman's issue what we're talking about like this is a society issue and I think Triple J did a really really good uh, piece this week where they didn't talk to survivors of sexual assault they spoke to men who have come to realize that they had pushed the bounds of consent or that perhaps they had assaulted someone uh, and they hadn't realised it until we had this conversation and they kind of reflected back on some of their treatment and some of their uh, sexual relations and realised that, hey, like I was probably one of the guys that people are talking about now. And I thought that was really, really powerful and just such a necessary interjection into this conversation because we do always look at uh, at the victims and we always have survivors like myself who have to talk about their experiences. Mm. But we never seem to hear from people who say, look, that was me. I pushed the boundaries of consent. I didn't understand this. I wasn't treating people equally. And I think we need to hear more from people who have had that revelation, who have gone, actually, I was that person. Because this isn't happening in a vacuum. This isn't something that just impacts politics. This is something that impacts every single household, we all know somebody who has been impacted by inequality or sexual assault. And we just don't like looking at the perpetrators. And we need to wonder why. They're not monsters, they're people we know. So why don't we think that we know them? Mm. Now, will we talk about the polls showing men as a group unmoved by what many have called a reckoning? Do you think we're seeing this in the media? A male journalists failing to set to, to step up? Absolutely. I it just <laughs> it really baffles me and I can't believe at this point I'm still shocked, but the amount of cooked commentary that is coming out, it's just like really you really still think that? Mm. I think you know, this is the AFR piece um, yes, of course. that you wanted to touch on. Um which of course was this massive attack on mm-hmm. Samantha Maiden. But the thing before that is this is what we've been seeing time and time again of people going, oh, my goodness, wow, look at all these female journalists. These female journalists are stepping up, you know. And what they, what um, Aaron Patrick said in this AFR piece was, it, you know, this, this new form of activism and journalism came from a new female leadership. And he names Lara Tingle, Louise Milligan, you know, really, really big heavy hitters. And this is what shocks me. Like have male commentators not looked to their left and seen their female colleagues or competitors before? Why are people shocked at these journalists who have been doing fantastic, really important work for decades? Why are they shocked that they exist? And why did it have to be a social, sexual violence reckoning that caused these women, you know, to be noticed by these men? Well, I mean, Laura Tingle, who's obviously now at the ABC, spent decades at the AFR, starting in 1981. So I'm I'm very surprised if, if Aaron Patrick has just sort of turned to his left and noticed her now. She, um, she still writes column for the AFR. She does, She's exactly, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, look, now that we, we have touched on it, we let's uh, let's properly break that one down. So the Australian Financial Review piece by, by Aaron Patrick, uh, it was titled PM Court in Crusade of Women Journos, um, which, look, it does sound nasty for the PM. Uh, Patrick's piece, though, had News Corp journalist Samantha Maiden in its sights and outlined an allegation flowing out of the PM's presser where he slurred News Corp and then tried to back this up with a series of comments about Maiden's behaviour, including her time in school. 
Amy, what's your take on this? Was it quality probing journalism or was a score being settled here? Uh, I think it was, uh, I, I don't know if it was a score being settled because I don't know if, you know, Aaron Patrick has had, uh, you know, any score to settle with Sam Maiden. I do think, though, that it was targeted to try and take down a journalist who has been leading a lot of the coverage on this issue. She was the first journalist to write uh, Brittany Higgins' story, uh, and she has broken numerous stories uh, as as the weeks have gone on. I just, I was really angered by the piece, and I've understood why a lot of uh, the male journalists and, you know, including some of my colleagues, have not taken a lead on this because there's quite a few of them who don't see it as their space because they're saying it should be led by the people who, you know, are experts in this. And that's something that we should be doing across the board. We should have a disparity of voices We shouldn't always have, you know, the middle-aged white man commenting on things that they don't necessarily understand. I I totally understand why quite a few journalists have ceded the space to other journalists to tell this story. What really angered me, though, about the AFR piece, though, was that it did get personal. I think that Mm. you can attack a journalist's work, but to get personal like that was taking it to a whole other level, and it did kind of show why the piece was being written. I mean, there was a line in there about how the Prime Minister's office or the Prime Minister was miffed that a journalist who had, you know, uh, some sort of history was leading the charge on these things. And I think that was really revealing because it wasn't so much that, oh, you know, we're being asked uncomfortable questions. It was, oh, we're being asked uncomfortable questions by somebody who perhaps shouldn't be throwing stones. Mm. Now, there are a lot of issues with a lot of, you know, journalists, a lot of workplaces. That is, you know, not any, not in doubt at all. There are nobody who has clean slates in the media because, you know, we're humans. That's just kind of how life goes. Mm. But the Prime Minister has made a real habit of telling people to be careful. He said it to the Labor Party when they've raised questions about what's been going on. He's like, you should be careful, people in glass houses. Mm. In that press conference, he literally said the same thing. You should be careful, people in glass houses, to the journalist Andrew Clennell when he asked the Prime Minister about some of the response. And to me, be careful is only one step away from be quiet. And I think Mm. that's what that piece was about. It was about be quiet, stop talking about this because you've got skeletons in your closet too, allegedly. Amber, what's your view? It it was interesting to see, um, I absolutely agree with Amy, and it was interesting to see that those details of Sam Maiden's personal life Mm. um, were removed and that was after the AFR came out and defended the piece and then quickly kind of took it away, probably realising that it's it's really inappropriate to go, you know, while there's obviously some public interest in politicians' personal lives and I suppose to some extent journalists, the, the depth that they went to was inappropriate. Mm. Um, and for them to retract that but not address it I think is incredibly cowardly. It's hard to think of any political male journalists that have been treated like like this. Uh, Andrew Bolter's mm-hmm. Andrew Bolter's had his life and motivation looked over on a number of occasions, but one could argue he's not a journalist in the traditional sense, or not anymore at least. Uh, should journalists be held up for the same scrutiny as the people they report on? Amy, it, it's a it's a really tough one because 
I think when journalists stray into commentary and you start talking about your personal opinions, people mm-hmm. see that as fair game. And Andrew Bolt is, you know, he's a commentator, not necessarily a journalist. So he has often spoken about his beliefs and his views of the world based on his experience. His experience creates his reality, which creates his commentary. So I think that's one of the reasons why when Andrew Bolt uh, has, you know, been challenged, it can become personal. You know, like there's, I think though, that when you start doing what happened to Sam in that piece, you are crossing a really dangerous line because you're essentially saying that anybody who is asking questions of power needs to be absolutely perfect and make sure that there are no issues in their history that could be used against them. And this is not something that has happened just to to journalists. Like we have literally chased people out of the country because, you know, as a, as a media, because they have said something that people found, you know, controversial or whatever. And the next thing that, you know, I'm of course talking of, of Yasmin, the next yeah. thing, you know, yeah, of course. You, you know, you suddenly have every single tweet and Facebook post and interaction. We had um, a gentleman ask a question on Q&A, which was uncomfortable mm. for some power structures. And all of a sudden, he was milkshake ducked and every single part of his past was revealed. It's this real sanctimonious moral view that the only people who are allowed to commentate on issues within Australian society are the people who sit in their ivory towers and, like, you know, send down the word from above. And that is wrong. It is absolutely wrong and it shouldn't be happening. Journalists aren't elected by the public, you know, like we do not represent the public, we write for the public. If you want to go through my past, like there's plenty of people I've pissed off and, you know, like plenty of plenty of things that if I had my time again, I would probably be a little bit more considered in how I acted in those situations. Does that have anything to do with my journalism? No, because if I ever have a conflict of interest, I declare it. And I think I think what Aaron Patrick did and the AFR did has had a right, rightly so, has had that backlash because it crossed lines that should never, ever, ever have been in contention. Amber, what's your assessment? Should should we know what Chris Yulman is like in the office or you know, should Ka- Catherine Murphy have to answer for leaving her lunch from last week in the fridge? she does by the way she does I mean you're sorry uh, we should we should mention um, I'm sure anybody listening to this will will be aware that Amy's a a, a colleague of Catherine's two wonderful women at the Guardian Um, Amber what's your take I think Amy hit the nail on the head there Mm -hmm. which is you know journalists aren't paid aren't elected by the public to represent the public and I think it's fair that you know our elected representatives have to be held to an incredibly high moral standard. And it's absolutely fair that people expect that of them because we're paying them for that. And that we, you know, we can criticize them and look through that. I think that that's fair. With the Samantha Maiden attack, it didn't actually say anything specific. So say, hypothetically, if Samantha Maiden was accused of sexual harassment and was trying to call out someone else for sexual harassment, sure, I, you know, I might I might say, well, look, this is this is problematic, but that's not what happened at all. She was calling out elected officials, and then there were some very wishy-washy kind of allegations or you know, alluding to something else in her past, and it, that doesn't make any sense. I don't think that that's fair, and I agree with Amy. It was completely crossing a line. 
One of the elements I want to talk about is a principal claim in, in Patrick's article was that the PM was bringing up the incident in the toilets at News Corp. He, it was a clumsy dig at Samantha Maiden, but the context of his answer was Sky's Andrew Clennell asking him about rape in the workplace, which is why everyone at the time assumed he was talking about an alleged sexual assault or sexual harassment at News Corp. Should we be alarmed if Patrick is right about the message the PM was trying to send, that when asked about a rape, he sees this as an opportunity to settle a score with a female journo? Amber? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's very much a, I'm watching you, so, so be quiet. And I think that's incredibly awful that we're almost doing this, you know, prid quo quo on mm. assault. It's like, well, you've got one, I've got one, therefore they equal, they cancel each other out. That's not how it works and that's not what we should expect the leader of our country to mm. ever say. It was extraordinary at the time because it also came at the time where the Prime Minister was trying to reset the conversation. I've listened, I've learned, I haven't always got it right, but I'm going to move forward in a way that takes into account all of your concerns. And the the moment it became uncomfortable for him in the questioning, he responded in a very political way, basically saying, oh, well, I've heard a rumour that this has happened in your organisation, which then had to be backtracked very quickly quickly because no one actually knew what he was talking about to be all like oh no it's not to do with sky news and oh no it's you know we then we had that 11 p.m um apology that was Mm. in retraction that was posted on his social media sort of saying like I got it wrong and like you know let's all move on like that was just such a a moment to show you of how political This is all being taken, that the moment questions became uncomfortable, it did, as Amber just say, turn into a like, oh, well, I know this about you. And like that has been the issue with this entire response. That's why we're not seeing any action because everyone's walking around going, well, you're not perfect in this slate either. Well, no, no political party is perfect on this. No workplace is perfect on this, you know, because society isn't perfect on this. So how about we just shut our mouths, listen and act actually start acting so we can protect people from becoming the next story that people are talking about. The the alleged allegation that we think Morrison was making against Maiden, if Patrick is correct, is not in any sense equivalent to what Brittany Higgins is alleging. What does it it say that the PM would equate the two together? I don't know. I don't know what the Prime Minister was briefed on. I don't know where he got that information. Mm. Uh, I don't know why he decided to come forward with that because what was in Aaron Patrick's, you know, article, what he seemed to be alluding to was some sort of verbal stoush with another journalist over, you know, I don't know, some sort of like some sort of work issue or press gallery mm. issue. Mm. And I and I think that whatever whatever Scott Morrison was told what made him to to make that allegation that he later retract and apologised for, it was either deliberately exaggerated or he decided to join dots himself for some other reason or didn't know who it was about or whatever. I think the point, the issue that I had, because I didn't know what he was alluding to Hmm. at the time, uh, the issue that I had with all of it was that he responded with what was a rumour that he heard. The Prime Minister who has spent since February saying how he did not know about Brittany Higgins' story until it broke in the media immediately responded with a rumour that he had apparently 
he heard the day before. And I just I just can't wrap my head around that, that apparently he's hearing rumours about, you know, whatever's happening in media workplaces, but not about what's happening in his own government. I think it really undoes his kind of, Morrison really seems to be trying to push for this ignorance angle. I didn't know I couldn't have done anything. And it really, really undoes that. If you can be briefed about a rumour that wasn't even true, from another workplace but not know about your your own. I, I don't believe for a second that he didn't know about it or that he didn't know about the allegations against Porter, you know, prior to them coming out in the media. Um, and I think this just really shows that he, he of course, he knows a lot more than, than he's letting on. And if he has time to look into other people's workplaces' issues, he has time to look into his own workplace's culture. Hmm. One of the undercurrents in, in Aaron Patrick's piece is that you know, these difficult women are, are basically a problem for the PM. Um, now, the Julia Gillard misogyny speech was nine years ago, 2012. Have we progressed at all since then? Amy, to you first. Look, we've re- progressed in some ways and then not in others. And I think that is shown by what like Amber and you have touched on with that. You look at the polling and men haven't moved on this issue. We don't have women leaders of political parties at a federal level. Uh, We still expect women to speak on women's issues uh, and we still have a very like at least top-heavy male representation. When you look at the parliament, it does not reflect the society that I walk around in. It do, it just it just doesn't. Uh, and that says a lot about wealth and privilege and people who have the time to be able to, you know, dedicate uh, their their resources to getting a parliamentary career. And it's not it's not something that's open to everyone. I think that the I think where we have seen movement is that the journalists are a lot more aware of what the parliament represents and what comes out of the parliament. And I think that's why you have seen so many uh, women step forward and just go, you know what, we're going to lead the coverage here because this is something that we have been screaming about for quite some time. And this is something that you need to about which we didn't we didn't see when Julia Gillard gave her speech the press gallery didn't immediately catch on to how significant that speech was because they were looking at it from a political point of view I think now you do see uh, a lot more voices stepping up to talk about what is happening in politics and I again said that is that is a huge reason of why we need more diversity in our media because there are people with experiences that will pick up on undercurrents that people with experiences like myself are just not going to see. Amber? Um, look, well, I, I don't think we'd ever have, you know, Julia Gillard faced, mm. had that menu made about her discussing her thighs and mm-hmm. her breasts. Mm. I don't think we'd see that again. I just think it's moved a little bit more underground and the ideology still exists, but the men that are perpetuating it might not say it you know, would only say it in closed ranks. So as Amy said, I think it's good that journalists and other politicians are quicker to cotton onto it and quicker to call it out, but it still exists. Well, look, I want to end on a, a positive note. Women are doing, obviously, a lot of the heavy lifting and, and not just female journalists uh, here on this issue. Grace Tame is also at the forefront of this. What do you think of her contribution? And are the two of you inspired by her? Because I certainly am. Amber, to you first. I think it's I think it's fantastic that we have a sexual assault survivor made Australian of the year. I really think it shows 
just how um, important society is taking this issue um, and how, uh, you know, and the lack of stigma around it, the lack of, you know, the way Mm. perception is changing and that it's okay to come out, it's okay to identify your experiences and your trauma and identify that you have survived it um, and have lived with it. Um, I think as well she's a fantastic speaker and has said some great things. I would say, though, there is a risk that, you know, I don't think that the Me Too movement should have a face necessarily. And I think that there is a risk that as mm. wonderful as Grace Team is, she she fits the mould of what people tend to see in the media. You know, right. she she is she's white, she's well-spoken, and I don't think the Me Too movement should be about that. I think the whole point is that it's everybody. Um, and by putting her face there, it does some wonderful things for for survivors and representation. But I think we have to be careful to acknowledge that that's not what the Me Too movement necessarily looks like. Amy, what's your assessment? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that any one person should become the face of a movement that impacts mm-hmm. all of all of society and, and all communities, it's it's too much pressure for one person as well. Like it's it's a lot to ask people to relive their trauma and their experiences uh, and to have opinions on absolutely everything that, you know, it's, it's just coming from their opinion. It's not necessarily an area of their expertise. And I think Grace Tame is someone who is, she is wonderful and eloquent and very passionate and has already caused change and she has inspired so many people to come forward and not feel shame about what might have happened to them and uh, to encourage them to speak up or that whatever response that they've had is is good enough that you don't have to be anyone. I just don't think that a, as Amber says, that we should just have one person of as the face of it because there isn't just one face to what we're talking about. There's so many and we need to remember that those people are not all represented by one idea of what a sexual uh, assault survivor looks like, um, myself included. There are many, many, many women and uh, trans women and just uh, just gender diverse people who have stories that we need to listen to and we need to advocate for. But I also worry uh, for Australian society, what happens when we lionise people and they sometimes don't always meet our expectations? I don't think it's fair on anyone to be tasked with leading a movement. I think it's something that we literally all have to come together as a bit of a chorus and talk about and to amplify the voices of those we're not hearing from. Very well said. Well, Amy Ramikus and Amber Schultz, thank you both for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks as always to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Thank you.